There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high coverage foundation. More popular than soft launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. Especially in that moment, being physically alone, not knowing how any of this was going to end, you really do kind of just reach out to the universe and and call upon anything you can. And I, I mean, I really was, I was feeling not just my grandma who had recently passed, but, uh, because that was like definitely, it gave me strength to face death because I knew the probability of me being killed was high. So I had to somehow make peace with the fact that I could be any moment gone. And I felt like she would just take my hand and, and walk me where I needed to go. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. And today is a really special episode for Alexis and I. Um, If you have watched the documentary on Netflix, American Nightmare, it's been, I think, the top show on Netflix for the past two months. You're going to know this story. We got to interview Denise and Aaron together. And it was... They're the most wonderful people I think I've ever talked to in my life. What do you think, Lex? They're so kind. They're so empathetic. They're so gentle. They just ooze like love and gentleness. And despite what happened, there's no bitterness. They're just like loving, kind people. I was like, holy shit, when we were done interviewing them, like, I can't believe how great they are and present and authentic. They're just wonderful. Yeah, we were really moved um, by our interview with them and touched by what we got to talk to. And we feel very honored that they even thought about us at all. So so honored. um, This is a really special episode. It's a two-parter. And with all of our two-parters, if you want to listen to everything right now, you can go to on our Patreon. But um, I think that that's enough of that. And we should jump right into the episode. All right, let's do it. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. A stranger breaking into your home in the middle of the night and confronting you while you sleep and taking you from everything you know, ripping away your sense of safety. It's everyone's worst case scenario, a harrowing fever dream. And many of you listening, like we've said, may have already been captivated by the unbelievable story of Denise Huskins and Aaron Quinn, whether it's through the book Jack talked about, whether it's through American Nightmare, or maybe you also follow the news in real time. But even if you think you know everything, rest assured, the level of injustice reported on is really just the tip of the iceberg. There are still so many questions that linger. And like Jack said, we sat down with Denise and Aaron and got to the bottom of all of it. There's so much more to learn about. There's so much more to be heartbroken about. And of course, there's so much more to be outraged about. 
today's case takes us back to Sunday, March 22nd of 2015. Top songs on the radio were Uptown Funk by Mark Ronson and Bruno Mars and Thinking Out Loud by Ed Sheeran. And as far as movies goes, the Divergent series Insurgent was number one at the box office, followed by number two, Disney's Cinderella. And ironically, another movie in theaters at the time was Peeping Tom, which was directed by Michael Powell. And the setting for today's story is Vallejo, California, which lies in the Northern California Bay Area, more specifically, Mare Island, which is a peninsular section of Vallejo that's about a mile wide and less than four miles long. And according to legend, Mare Island was named by a Mexican general in 1835 after his white mare, which is a horse, plunged from a capsized ship into the nearby Carquinez Strait only to reappear on shore days later. A magic horse, if you will. Wow. So, Mare Island was the nation's first naval station on the West Coast, commencing operations in 1854 and closing in 1996. Super interesting place. Oh, yeah. And Mare Island is also a place where Aaron Quinn, a 30-year-old physical therapist, lived in this idyllic two-story house on Kirkland Avenue. If you've seen pictures and if you've watched the documentary, it really does look like something straight out of a Norman Rockwell painting. The pastel yellow house is flanked by rose bushes and pristinely manicured hedges. Aaron lived alone in the house in March of 2015, but he previously lived there with his fiance Andrea Roberts. And if you've read Victim F, they refer to her as... As Jennifer, but her real name is Andrea, and that's how we will be referring to her in this episode. Yes. And Andrea ended up moving out after Aaron found out that she was cheating on him with a cop from a neighboring town. So Aaron obviously was devastated by this infidelity. And while they'd been broken up for a while, Andrea had only recently moved out the last of her things from the house. And following the split from Andrea, Aaron began dating Denise Huskins in 2014, who was also a physical therapist who worked in the same office as he did. It's kind of exciting to imagine dating someone at work. But in this particular situation, there was a catch. Aaron's ex, Andrea, worked there too. So the situation isn't ideal for any of them. And despite that, things were going pretty well between Aaron and Denise, who Aaron had been dating for about eight months at that point. Aaron was still sometimes haunted by the ghost of his past relationship, though. After all, working with your ex is something that would make a clean break pretty difficult. And on the evening of Sunday, March 22nd of 2015, Aaron and Denise had plans to get together and talk about their relationship. At this point, they were really at this impasse. Denise had discovered exchanges between Aaron and Andrea that resembled emotional cheating. Denise, knowing that she deserved better, was prepared to end the relationship if Aaron couldn't step it up and commit the way that she needed him to. For everyone who thought they knew this story, right, talk about how important that is to understand this story. For one, we were struggling with our relationship and Aaron's prior relationship with his ex, and we were at a crossroads that evening. We both decided, yes, we want to move forward together and and really try to make this work. And although it was an emotional evening, it was a very positive one. Their talk was constructive, productive, and Aaron expressed his desire and readiness to commit to Denise fully. They ate pizza, they had a couple beers, and they talked for hours. By the end, they felt good about starting fresh and rebuilding trust, and they got in bed around midnight and fell asleep, excited for the new place they'd be in tomorrow morning. But when they got in bed, they had no idea what tomorrow morning had in store for them. The unimaginable happened when they were awoken from a deep sleep at 3 a.m. by an unknown masked assailant. The intruder shined a bright light into their eyes, and they could see red dots of light that looked like laser pointers that were crossing the walls. Then they heard a voice of a man they didn't know. Wake up. This is a robbery, they said, before assuring them that he wasn't there to hurt them. The voice ordered Denise to zip-tie Aaron's feet together and his hands behind his back. Then they were separated, and Denise was forced into the bedroom closet. Amidst the chaos when she looked down, Denise could see two sets of feet belonging to the assailants. Then Denise was tied up too. The intruders covered Denise and Aaron's eyes with blacked-out swimming goggles and put headphones over their ears. And then these pre-recorded messages began playing for them. The audio recordings referred to Aaron by name and stated that they were going to be given sedatives. If they wouldn't take them, they would inject them intravenously. From behind their goggles, Denise and Aaron listened and answered questions asked by the assailant. And this led to the assailant saying ominously, we have a problem. Right. And the problem was that Denise was not their intended target. 
They had the wrong person. He asked Aaron whether Denise and his ex Andrea resembled each other, and Aaron said, yeah, they both have long blonde hair. They were there for Andrea, not for Denise. That just like hit me. Like we were just moving forward from this, and now the situation is somehow involving her. Denise hoped that since the intruders realized their error, they would just abandon this plan. But that's not what happened. He said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take you for 48 hours and Aaron is going to have to complete some tasks. To be woken up in the middle of the night and for me being told I'm going to be taken for 48 hours, they got this wrong. This wasn't meant for you. This was meant for, and they name Aaron's ex's first and last name. I already carried a lot of guilt for how I treated Denise and frankly, how I treated myself. And that was a part of going to therapy and recognizing that. What I was doing was not who I want to be, but I had to own up to my own actions and to have already damaged our relationship and then have the kidnappers say it was for my ex, just add to my own guilt. And that's been a challenge as far as recovery of letting that stuff go or finding acceptance or a different avenue to view instead of just a lot of self-blame. Aaron was taken downstairs and placed on a sofa. He was given drugs to make him fall asleep. He was warned that a camera had been mounted on a wall for the purpose of watching his every move. A perimeter of tape was put on the ground around him on the floor, and he was instructed not to step outside of it. The intruder at one point asked the bound and tied Aaron if he was comfortable, and Aaron said he was cold and asked for a blanket, to which the intruder replied, "'Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize how cold it is because we're all wearing wetsuits.'" Aaron was told that they would communicate with him via text and email, and that they created specific email addresses for their correspondences. Both Aaron and Denise were scheduled to work the following morning, so Aaron was ordered to call in sick to work for both of them. He was to tell Denise's boss that she had a family emergency and would be out for the entire week. He was also told that he would have to withdraw money from his bank to give the intruders, and he was also told that if he went to the police, they would kill Denise. Denise was taken outside and placed in the trunk of Aaron's white Toyota Camry before it sped off. After the house was quiet, Aaron felt safe enough to try to push the blacked-out goggles that he was wearing off of his face. He was desperate to act, but he started to feel severe effects of whatever sedative he'd been given. Soon, he was unconscious. He awoke at around 11.30 a.m. the next morning to emails from the intruder, who ordered Aaron to send them two payments of $8,500 each. He replied to them but didn't hear back, prompting him to panic. With the surveillance camera pointing squarely at him, Aaron believed that he was being monitored at every moment. He was petrified, terrified to call 911, worried that they would make good on their promise to kill Denise if he did. Thankfully, Aaron did have somewhere and somebody that he could turn to, his older brother Ethan, who was an FBI agent. So he worked up the courage to call him. Ethan didn't answer, so Aaron called Ethan's girlfriend, who did answer the phone. Soon, Aaron was on the phone with his brother, who urged him to call 911 immediately, regardless of the kidnapper's threats. So when officers from the Vallejo Police Department arrived at Aaron's Mare Island home, it was probably a huge relief for Aaron. But that relief was short-lived. When Aaron opened the door to let officers inside, the first thing they asked him was, are you on drugs? He was on drugs because he'd been drugged. Aaron wasn't met with the concern and sense of urgency he expected, given that his girlfriend had been forcibly taken in the middle of the night. And somehow, given all he'd experienced in the preceding hours, things were about to get so much worse. Responding officers unplugged the camera installed by the assailants, and they questioned him about why he waited so long to call for help. And they inferred that Aaron had been partying because there were a couple of empty beer bottles in the kitchen from the night before. Aaron answered all of the questions truthfully. But it didn't matter. It was becoming painfully clear that the police didn't believe him. The officers probed Aaron about Denise and the state of their relationship. Aaron, again, was honest and told them that they had been having problems and that they had discussed the future of the relationship the night before, which was all true. Aaron explained to them how he, Denise, and Andrea all still work together and that Denise had accused him of emotionally cheating. He also told them how the assailants had been there for the purpose of abducting Andrea, not Denise. Investigators noted that Aaron's car, laptop, and some of the bedding from the master bedroom was missing, that they all found very suspicious. And they were suspicious about Aaron's rationale for waiting so long to call 911. With all of this, the police began to suspect that this was a love triangle gone wrong, inferring that Aaron might have done something to harm Denise. 
Aaron was taken down to the Vallejo Police Department to give a statement to a detective by the name of Matthew Mustard. Aaron was cooperative, provided a DNA sample, and gave him the clothes that he was wearing that night. Aaron recounted the events of the previous evening and told them everything. He told them about the goggles and about how the assailant said that they were wearing wetsuits, about the recording he was forced to listen to through the headphones. Before we continue, I just want to say that Matthew Mustard sounds like a made-up policeman, a fictional policeman. (laughs) It is just an insane name. And Matthew Mustard, part of my French, fucking sucks. Yeah, not a fan. Not a fan. But Detective Mustard remained transfixed on one thing, the tension in Aaron and Denise's relationship. Detective Mustard began to accuse Aaron of lying, saying, I don't think you're being truthful, and I don't think anybody came into your house. He said, the story you're telling here, I ain't buying it at all. At this point, the police believed that Aaron had killed Denise and had fabricated the story of abduction to cover his tracks. Eventually, the FBI hopped onto the case as well, and they gave Aaron a polygraph test. Aaron was cooperative continuously insisting he had nothing to hide. Then he was told that he'd failed the polygraph test. Aaron was in hell. The police's job is not to determine if you're telling the truth or not, it's to gather facts and evidence. And so Detective Mustard thinks, as he put, a puzzle maker, not a puzzle solver, but he thinks he can tell the truth just based off people's body language and that that's debunked. They use a polygraph and they say, I failed it. You can't pass or fail a polygraph because it's junk science. So it's just a tool to to manipulate you. And they are very effective at manipulating the way the police act. This is like almost standard operating procedure. And what we hope by sharing this is that police realize they can do better. And there are better techniques out there like the peace model where they act like journalists and not make decisions on truth based off of if you look to the right or if you look to the left. And that's one of our hopes of why we continue to share this, because I know there's better options out there. Aaron was interrogated for 18 hours. In footage from the interior of the Vallejo Police Department, he can be seen lying on his side in the fetal position, seemingly completely broken. The stress he's under is visually evident. And nothing he said could convince the police that they needed to be out looking for Denise, and his fear for her safety was his number one concern. You can see how much is breaking me down. Now, I'm a 30-year-old male at this point. If they're doing this to me, I have a brother's FBI agent, I have a doctorate degree. My dad's a doctor, so I'm very privileged in my life. They're doing this to 18-year-olds who don't have the means, who can't hire attorneys like Dan Russo, and they will get confessions. And if you confess, you are done. You are going to get convicted regardless of the physical evidence. Looking back, Aaron acknowledges that if the police treat someone like him this way, a white male from a privileged background, then just try to imagine how they treat others. And he's got a point. It's a terrifying prospect. Here's Denise. Fast forward to Aaron reaching out to the police, you know, they couldn't help but see it as a love triangle and, and get carried away and all of their thoughts of what happened or what Aaron's implication and what happened was. I don't blame the police for looking at that avenue. They should. They should explore it as this a horrible love triangle that went wrong. The problem is that's the only thing they focused on. As we all know now, Denise had very much been abducted, regardless of law enforcement's skepticism. Denise woke up on a cold floor, still blindfolded. And based on the surroundings and what she felt, she thought she might be in a cabin. She heard strange noises coming from another room. Something that sounded like scrubbing and something that sounded like someone handling duct tape. Then Denise heard the voice of her abductor, who began engaging her in conversation. During their prolonged exchanges, he revealed that he was former military and he claimed to work as a kidnapper for hire. He also admitted to struggling with PTSD and that he had trouble sleeping. He also told Denise that he was not going to harm her and that he planned to let her go in 48 hours. He talked about belonging to a black market crime organization as well. Denise was in a state of shock, and at times she was sure she was going to be killed. Eventually, the assailant talked about needing collateral, claiming to have been ordered by a higher-up to make a recording of the two of them having sex. Then he promised to be gentle. Denise was raped by him twice. The intruder claimed the first rape didn't look consensual enough. He also plied her with alcohol. And he threatened to release these videos on the internet if she didn't comply with his demands. Denise didn't think she was going to make it out of this alive. Especially in that moment, being physically alone, not knowing how any of this was going to end you really do kind of just reach out to the universe and 
and call upon anything you can. And I, I mean, I really was, I was feeling not just my grandma who had recently passed, but, uh, cause that was like, definitely that gave me strength to face death because I knew the probability of me being killed was high. So I had to somehow make peace with the fact that I could be any moment gone. And I felt like she would just take my hand and, and walk me where I needed to go. Denise recalls thinking of her family, wondering if they even know that she had been abducted at all, hoping that they didn't. I knew what was happening to me and for my sanity was like, okay, this is what I can control. I can control how I'm reacting and I'm trying to think every second of how I can get out of this alive. How can I not provoke him? But in the back of my mind, I'm just like, I hope to God my family doesn't even know that I'm missing because they don't have any idea of what I'm going through. And I could be being brutally tortured, you know, like your mind just spins and just to think of being a parent and not knowing what could be happening to your child. You know, your child's still your child at age 30, at age 50. The day after Denise's abduction, on the afternoon of March 24th, a San Francisco Chronicle reporter named Henry Lee received what was referred to as a proof-of-life message. In the recorded message sent by her abductors, Denise spoke about a recent plane crash to prove that it had been recently recorded that day and provided information that only those close to her would know. And that information was that her first concert was a Blink-182 concert. In these recordings, Denise sounded calm and relayed that she was okay. Here is that audio. All right, Denise Haskin, I'm getting Earlier today, there was a plane crash in the house. After the police heard the proof-of-life message, they called Aaron back to the police department, instructing him to send a message back to the kidnappers. By this point, Aaron had lawyered up, and his counsel accompanied him. The police had Aaron's phone in their possession, and when he was handed his phone back, his attorney noticed that the phone had been put on airplane mode, which is really an astonishing move, especially considering that it was the only means for Aaron or anyone else for that matter to communicate with Denise's kidnappers. It just further demonstrates that the police are like, we don't fucking believe you. We're not even going to leave the phone on. I truly, this is one of the most mind-blowing parts of this case is that they put his phone on airplane mode. Because it costs them nothing to do that. Even if Aaron did kill Denise, like you suspect, wouldn't incoming messages or incoming calls from whoever be relevant. It's just so negligent and stupid. Any sort of evidence in any capacity is just so, so insane, especially obviously what we learn when he turns the phone on. Yeah, especially they learn that the kidnapper had called the phone three times while it was in police possession. So they're just like bungling this from moment one. Yeah, it's pretty freaking insane. So... Why were the kidnappers sending this proof of life in the first place? You know, what was the purpose of what they were doing? So up to this point, they had suspected that Aaron had killed Denise and he was working to cover it up. And given this new evidence, the police had to now change up the theory that they'd been crafting. They had to believe Aaron now, right? Like, obviously, Denise is still alive. Well, it turns out that was wrong. So once the proof-of-life message was made public, the media scrutiny began. Talking heads on the news criticized Denise's tone and demeanor in the recording and made determinations about how Denise should have sounded, should she really have been abducted. Here's Aaron on that. When Denise gives the proof-of-life, the media is going like, well, she acted this way, but she sounds calm. When I heard it, I thought she was scared. I know Denise. Her mom didn't even recognize her at first because it didn't sound like her. So people who actually knew Denise went, yeah, this sounds different. But then it's judgments by FBI agents and police and the media who have no context whatsoever and not recognizing that proof of life is a recording. This isn't a live thing. So what is she supposed to do? Law enforcement then turned to Denise's family and asked them probing questions about her entire life. In an interview, Denise's mother was talking about how she was investigated about Denise's childhood, and she told investigators that Denise had been molested as a child. And this response from Matt Mustard is, again, one of the most mind-blowing things that I've heard in this entire case and in any situation I've ever heard in my life. He said that victims of sexual assault sometimes pretend to be a victim again for the thrill of it. And that's what he said that Denise was doing at this very moment. It is the most offensive thing to ever 
be told in your entire life. And Denise ended up learning about this later on. They didn't know much about me. They asked my family questions and it was very much to get any kind of negative thing they could. Even when my family didn't offer them negative things and talked about how I was like running half marathons and that I'm a strong person, they use that against me. And I want to say too, these aren't just bad cops. Like these are vile people. Horrible. You're not just a bad detective. You're a bad fucking person if this is how you view women and victims. Like you have no business. And Or if you're manipulating Denise's mother by saying these things and you don't mean them, that's also vile. Like there's no scenario where it's acceptable to say something like that. No. And this, again, it's like, these are the people that we're entrusting to take care of the people that we love. Like it is so abhorrent. It really is. It's unfathomable. It is. It's vile. And now that Denise proved to be alive, a new police narrative was taking hold that Denise had essentially abducted herself with the help of Aaron. And they were working together on this hoax for I mean, God knows what reason. They didn't present a motive, but what motive could anyone have to do this? But that's besides the point. So soon it had been upwards of 40 hours since Denise's abduction and media interest in the case continued to mount. It's unclear whether this was an act of mercy or of torment, but Denise's captor eventually showed her a video of her father on the news begging for Denise's safe return. Denise had been doing all she could to stay strong through this nightmare, but seeing her dad was just too much to bear. He didn't have the capacity to even process that until I was shown an article of my dad speaking out to me, which is the first time I broke down in front of my captor. You know, at the same time, though, like I could feel everyone's energy with me and that supported me and that helped give me strength and get me through it. Meanwhile, the police continued to scrutinize Aaron's demeanor. He had tried to remain calm and composed in the face of the unthinkable, and law enforcement at this point was using this against him. They're seeing me for the first time. My brother is telling Detective Mustard that, you know, he's a pretty calm person. He's always been like this. I try and give, give him some context as a person who's known me my entire life, but Detective Mustard blows that off. And for me at the police station, my whole goal was to help them find Denise, and I have, you know, Working in a hospital, I have been in medical emergencies. I've had to perform CPR on people. You do your job and then you deal with it after. And that's why you see when I'm left alone, I am like curled up in a ball. I am just trying to provide information because I know time is ticking. And the police are judging me, but they don't even know me. While Aaron was holding it together by a thread... On March 25th, two days after her abduction, Denise's captors told her that they were in fact going to let her go. And the main intruder who has been talking to her in these exchanges and the one who committed the rapes, he basically says, I can't drive you back to Vallejo, so I'm going to take you somewhere else. So they go in the car, and during this drive, Denise remained blindfolded. But this time, she sat in the car's front seat instead of being put in the trunk, like an animal. I mean, this guy is astonishing. But as they drove, he threatened Denise and he said he would always be watching and that he'd come for her and her family if she told police or anyone involved that he had admitted to being in the military. He also wanted her to deny that she'd been raped by him. When they arrived at their destination, Denise was told to get out of the car before it sped off. When she removed her blindfold, she realized that she was 400 miles south of Vallejo in Huntington Beach, California, near her mom's house where she grew up. When she arrived at her mom's doorstep, nobody was home. So she borrowed a phone from a passerby and tried to call her father, who didn't answer. A concerned neighbor let Denise inside, and the police were called. And when the Huntington Beach Police Department arrived, they immediately began questioning Denise. And she recounted everything that had happened to her, including the details of being taken from Aaron's house two days prior. And when the police asked if she'd been sexually assaulted, she told them no, she hadn't. Because, you know, she'd been threatened not to. And at this point, she's only been free for a matter of minutes. She's still feeling extremely vulnerable and afraid of these people who had abducted her. It didn't take long for Denise to pick up on the fact that even these police down in Huntington Beach, they too were skeptical of her. Which, after all she'd already been through, was beyond anything she could have ever imagined. I'm hoping people will partly what they can get out of this, too. As humans, we need other humans. You know, we need our community. We need to be loved and supported. And it was really so 
shocking to be received the way that we were when I was released. Realizing she was under suspicion, Denise was paired with a criminal defense attorney named Doug Rappaport, and she flew back to Northern California. She had been traumatized beyond belief and was terrified of her abductor coming back and hurting her. Her release was a relief, but it was short-lived. She had no idea what was about to come and how much worse things were about to get. Accompanied by her attorney, Denise agreed to speak with the Vallejo Police Department investigators. She wanted to be cooperative, and she wanted her kidnappers caught. Following encouragement from her attorney, Denise finally felt safe enough to reveal the truth about the rape she'd endured and how the perpetrator had videotaped them and threatened her with them. She told Detective Mustard about how the suspect had claimed to be part of a criminal organization that included three other members, with each individual being in charge of a different part of the operation. She told Detective Mustard how she was sure it was more than one abductor because she'd seen two pairs of legs in the house on the night of her abduction. And she also, like we said, told them all about how she was afraid to tell them the truth about the sexual assaults because he had threatened to release these videos. According to an interview that Denise's attorney, Doug Rappaport, did with 2020, when he told the police that Denise needed to have a rape kit exam performed to collect the evidence, he said this. He said, they said the most callous thing I think I've ever heard somebody say from law enforcement. They said, well, just have her sleep in her clothes and don't take a shower and we'll talk in the morning. Again, this is disgusting. It's vile. And you're doing this to a victim of sexual violence. Like, I, I, I can't imagine anything worse. Right. And let's pretend Denise was lying. Still, go get the fucking rape kit. It's like, prove that she's lying then. Like, don't take the chance because in case she's not lying, like, that's so traumatizing. Yeah. Don't take a shower after two days of being abducted and raped. Like, don't take a fucking shower. Just sit, sit with all of that evidence on you and all of the, the trauma and the memories and don't wash it off. Just like, like, it's really dehumanizing and demeaning on top of everything else. My God. It's astonishing. And of course, it's beginning to dawn on Denise that she couldn't trust these police to help her. And she therefore becomes even more afraid of her captor's threats because now she's gone to them and told them all these things that he made her swear not to. So, and she doesn't have the police to protect her. So it's just a fucking nightmare. She's wondering, did he mean what he said about releasing these videos? Like, is she going to be victimized a third time by the release of these videos now? And she wondered, is my family in danger? She didn't know. And if they were, she had no one to turn to for help to protect her family either. This is truly a nightmare. And we see where Netflix got the title for their documentary, because I can't imagine anything worse. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, 
Resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Denise Huskins was released by her captor two days after she was ripped out of bed at her boyfriend's house. The police had doubted Aaron's story from the very beginning, and Denise was receiving the same treatment from the Vallejo Police Department. Once the media reported to the masses that Denise had been returned safely, the speculation and skepticism heightened and boiled over following an earth-shattering press conference held by the Vallejo PD. On the day Denise was released, Vallejo Police spokesperson Lieutenant Kenny Parks made a stunning announcement. According to him, Denise's abduction appeared to be, quote, an orchestrated event and not a kidnapping, and inferred that Denise and Aaron had straight up lied about what happened to them. If you can imagine devoting all of our resources 24 hours a day on what I, what I will uh, classify as a wild goose chase, uh, it's a tremendous loss. It's disappointing. It's disheartening. And the fact that we've essentially wasted all of these resources for really nothing is upsetting. We've had over 40 police detectives from the local, state, and federal levels, and over 100 support personnel assisting in the investigation, working round the clock to help locate Ms. Huskins. That is a tremendous amount of resources that, in my opinion, was wasted. I could sit here and apologize for, for me, for all of us, being regarded with our information, but I can tell you in the grand scheme of things, Mr. Quinn and Ms. Huskins has plundered valuable resources away from our community and, and has taken the focus away from the true victims of our community while instilling fear amongst our community members. So if anything, it is Mr. Quinn and Ms. Huskins that owes this community an apology. And it's at this point that the Gone Girl references began. At the time of Denise's abduction, the movie Gone Girl had only been out for about five months. And Denise's reappearance had set off a frenzy of media buzz, suggesting that the case resembled the book and the movie Gone Girl. The film starred Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike. And it's about a woman who fakes her own disappearance as revenge against her cheating husband, who then becomes the suspect. Naturally, all this was devastating to Denise, Aaron, and their families. After the hell they'd been through, only not to be believed, and then to be disparaged by the police and the press and mocked in the media, it's unthinkable to imagine how this would have felt to have your whole world imploding in this way. Observers had criticized Denise's every move and made snap judgments. Media as well, saying that I was unscathed. What does that mean? You know, because I, I wasn't brutally beaten so I, I think even if I was beaten, especially now, like having seen the movie Gone Girl, if I was beaten, if there was more physical damage from the rapes, it doesn't matter. If I fell over in someone's arms when I was released, like she does in the movie, you know, they would have said, oh, okay, see there, you know, that she's just like Gone Girl. Instead, I was completely opposite of everything of how she behaved in the movie. There's really no similarities to Gone Girl in our case at all, but it still sticks. And that's, I think, essentially what they were trying to do, law enforcement and, and sharing that with the media and, and painting this picture was just, if you implant it in the minds early on, it's really hard for people to get it out of their head. Oh yeah, it's like the first thing anybody hears, it's like, that's what they're gonna stick with no matter what. There's no right way to behave too, right? Like they would have criticized you for anything. Right. To this point, it's like, yeah, if we acted more expressive. We would have been too emotional. If we're quiet, we're psychopaths. Like, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. The day after Lieutenant Kenny Park made his public ill-informed accusations, 
the reporter from the San Francisco Chronicle who received the proof of life video, Henry Lee, received an unexpected email from somebody at the address huskinskidnapping at hotmail.com. The email said, Miss Huskins was absolutely kidnapped. We did it. I also just want to say, for everyone who thought this was Denise and Aaron, are they really going to make fucking Huskins kidnapping at hotmail.com? Why would they do that if they were doing it themselves? It seems like it's just unbelievable that they still at this point are thinking that's Denise and Aaron, who are probably pretty much like under the microscope of their families. They're not alone. How are they keeping this up now? If it is them. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of different uh timeline uh situations that didn't line up for either of them to be doing any of these things. But you know, maybe they were in two places at one time. They have Aaron's phone. So do they have evidence of them doing this in his phone? Like, where's the fucking evidence that they're working together? They haven't been reunited. So one of them is going rogue and being like, I'm gonna send an email. It just sounds ridiculous. Also, his computer didn't have his computer either. So right. where was he doing this <laughs> from? It's fucking insane. So at the time this was going down, and at the time Henry Lee received this email, he had been swept up in the salacious reporting on the case. He believed the hoax angle and believed that it was Denise and Aaron. And he suspected this email had come from one of them. In in Atavist magazine, Henry Lee did an interview and recalled noting that the author of the email had used several legal terms. So he thought to himself, well, maybe one of Denise or Aaron's lawyers are helping them with this hoax. Like, okay. So Lee replied to the sender's message with a request for an interview, and then he eventually passed the email on to police. But I'm just like, confirmation bias is wild. It's like, because he's been told it's a hoax, every single thing is like, oh, it's more proof that it's a hoax when it's when it's not. Well, and it's funny, like, it's not funny. It's fucked up throughout the entire story. How many people they're like, well, they must be a part of it. Well, now it's like, you know, then his dog walker's sister's aunt must be a part of the hoax, too, because it doesn't make sense that Aaron would do this. So obviously they had to pull another part, another person into their hoax. And then it's like a 20 person hoax. Where yeah, it's like, unreal. where was the motive for anybody to do this to begin with? You know, it's just like they really would do anything to to make their narrative work. Let's say another hypothetical, just for fun. Let's say Aaron and Denise did do a hoax and they told their lawyer that. Do you think the lawyer is going to be like, let me help you keep this hoax going? Or are they going to be like, cease all activities now so I can defend you? You know, like a lawyer would advise them to not double down. They'd be like, just stop the hoax and we'll get you out of this, right? Not like, let me help draft a, a letter from the abductors to help you. Like, th- it's just a fucking insane way of thinking. It really is. Two days later, Lee received yet another email message. And this time it was from the account nunatnowhere.com. This email was much more lengthy. The writer claimed to be speaking for the three co-conspirators who had different roles within their criminal operation. The first one collected biographical information. The second went through computers and phones. And the third set up technical items like cameras and tracking software. Right. And in the email, they said that they fancied ourselves a sort of Ocean's Eleven, gentlemen criminals. Okay, fucking nerds. And that they began committing burglaries and escalated to Denise's abduction, which was a test to see if this could be a lucrative operation. The author also said that, quote, after spending time with Denise, the men had succumbed to, further quote, a case of reverse Stockholm syndrome. Ashamed and unspeakably sorry, they were upset that she was being victimized again by the police and the media. The author of the email included proof of authenticity. They attached a photo of the weapon supposedly used during the crime. He claimed their criminal activity began on Mare Island and that they were careful to avoid houses with children, seniors, or veterans. The author said that the thieves once scared a neighborhood peeping Tom off a roof. He also said that they conducted surveillance with drones and on game cameras and that they wore hairnets and wetsuits, and they exfoliated and did all of these things to avoid shedding DNA. And they said in the email, I will pause to note how fantastical all of this sounds, because even I can't help to think that as I write. Among the photos included in the email was one of the gear that was reportedly used in the kidnapping and also one of the room where Denise was held. So when reporter Henry Lee received this email still thinking these were coming from Aaron and Denise. Again, he thought this was still a hoax. He couldn't understand why they were doing all of this. So unsettled, he called a Vallejo police lieutenant that he knew. 
and off the record, Lee asked the officer whether he and his family might be in danger. The lieutenant told him not to worry, and that all of this must just be part of the entire fraud. This email was also given to the police and made public. And the fact that the assailant seemed to come to Aaron and Denise's defense is something that remains truly perplexing even to this day. Denise, what do you think motivated him to take it so personally that you were being accused of having this be a hoax? I think the strangest part is that I wasn't really surprised. I was, and then I I wasn't. You know, the whole time in captivity, I think based off the time there, like he's holding me captive. He's choosing to rape me. He tells me over and over again that he didn't mean for this to happen, that you know, I don't want to keep dehumanize you. you know, you're going to be healing for a long time from this. And I'm sorry, you know, remorseful. Yeah, he, he even tells me at one point that he has an escape plan for him and his family. So if the others decide to kill me, don't worry, I'm not going to. It's like, well, if you have an escape plan, let me go now. And, you know, like, why do you have to rape me again? You know, but so I think part of it was to make himself feel like he wasn't all bad and rationalize his behavior. And also, I think, too, it was an elaborate crime and maybe the kidnappers wanted credit for it because like, hey, look, we got away with this. And then the police believes that the victims, you know, committed a hoax. So but look what we got away with. And, And I mean, they in their emails detail so much of of what they did. And so it's Yeah, I think a little bit of ego mixed in maybe with remorse. It's hard to know. I thought ego where I'm like with how elaborate and how clever he thinks he is. He's like, wow, it's so perfect. They think it's made up. And I I want them to know that like I masterminded this, even if they don't know who I am. Like I thought ego. I think that's more more than anything. Denise and Aaron were in absolute hell. And at this point, they still had not been reunited or even talked to each other. And it was such a relief once they finally got to see each other. Even if nobody else believed them, they had each other, and they somehow survived that experience together. Many of the unfortunate things that we discovered is when Denise and I were reunited, the the tactics the police were using on me were basically exactly what the kidnappers were doing to Denise. Obviously not the sexual assault portion of it, but separating me from my family, the isolation, the kind of a little bit like the good cop, bad cop. Like if, you know, I was threatened by Agent French that when he leaves, a lot more things are going to happen. Implying that the DA was going to charge me. That was going to bring shame to my family. They basically psychologically torture you. The police can no longer beat you like they did. So they developed a technique to psychologically torture you that is effective at getting confessions. The problem is it's effective at getting false confessions as well. And at no point did the police ever present me with objective facts. And as I say in the book, I'm like, which I said to Agent French is, what evidence do you have that I did anything? And he can't point to it. And that's one I decide I need to ask for an attorney because they just will beat you down and beat you down. And I, what I hope people recognize is that this is an ineffective way of investigating. Denise and Aaron were essentially forced into hiding. The news coverage exploded nationally, then internationally. Everyone knew who they were. And because of what the police had said on the news, everyone believed that this entire ordeal had been a hoax. Everyone except those in their close inner circle. How are they supposed to work? How are they supposed to return to a normal life, knowing that those who did this to them were still free? And that no one was looking for them. It's like being in purgatory. Denise and Aaron struggled to decipher what was happening and how this could happen to them. How did both the Vallejo Police Department and the FBI remain convinced that this was a hoax in the face of so much evidence? But then they learned a piece of information that could answer that question. And believe it or not, it once again had to do with Aaron's ex-fiance. told you in the beginning a little about Aaron's ex-fiance, Andrea, and about the infidelity that ended her relationship with Aaron. But before Andrea started dating Aaron, she had dated a local FBI agent named David Sesma. And Agent Sesma was put on Aaron and Denise's case. 
and Agent Sesma was well aware of Aaron and his history with Andrea. That's where things get even more complicated because their relationship ended because she had an affair with a different police officer during her relationship with Aaron. So Sesma was before that. She had a two-year affair with a local police officer in the town over. I actually didn't know his name, but, you know, if it's in the police's mind, it's always a boyfriend or, like, he at least is someone that they should look at. That goes into why Dave Sesma being involved in this case, as far as investigator, is a major conflict of interest as he was a former relationship. So he should have recused himself based off of that. And this is a challenge of that we don't have all those answers because we're not the investigators. But what we do know is none of those avenues have been looked at. And we have to just accept that because law enforcement has put their foot down and decided it's more important to protect themselves than to look at the possible leads. Because Aaron's brother, Ethan, is an FBI agent, he was actually relieved when Detective Mustard at the Vallejo Police Department told him that the FBI was joining the investigation but he had no idea it would just make everything worse. We go in detail about his involvement or how he helped us throughout in the book. I have a hard time because Dean's side suffered, but like our families suffered with us and our friends suffered. Ethan's one of the smartest people I know. And he's not just an FBI agent. He just got promoted to lieutenant colonel in the army. He has a law degree. He's a type of person you want in the FBI. He's pragmatic. He's smart. He's honest. He's, diligent. And so that was my viewpoint of the FBI. So when Detective Mustard tells me the FBI is involved, I'm thinking they're going to be a savior, not knowing that they're just going to act the same way with a different badge. Given the prior context Dave Sesma had about Aaron, did he have an axe to grind with him? Could this be at least part of the reason why law enforcement bungled this case so catastrophically? At one point, Agent Sesma even accused my brother of being involved or helping me cover up this case. Right. And as far as Sesma goes, I read in the book that you actually, with your ex, ran into him at least one time, right? So when did you connect the dots that he was actually involved in the case? On my first date with my ex, he was at the same restaurant. So he saw us together as her and I continued to date about three months into our relationship. As far as I know, he tried to rekindle the relationship. From what we understand, he downplayed any involvement that he had with my ex, saying that they went on one date although it's far more extensive than that. One of the biggest issues is that he did not question me or he did not question my ex. And I, I knew who he looked like. I knew his name. If he came in the room, I would flipped out. I kept my composure most of the time. And, but if I saw Agent Sesma coming into the room and starting to question me, I would have lost it because it was a major conflict of interest. I assumed he was either no longer working in Fairfield or he was not in this case because of his prior relationship. So Denise and I had a, we kept on talking after we were reunited about who questioned us from the FBI. And she kept on thinking, I think his name was probably Dave. I don't, Dave something. And I, and I was just describing all the agents that I had dealt with as the police had questioned me multiple times and none of them matched. And that didn't make any sense to me that you want to have the same case agents working throughout the case. So Agent Sesma did question Denise, but seemingly purposefully stayed out of Aaron's view because of the obvious conflict of interest at play, and also because Aaron would recognize him. It wasn't until Denise's lawyer, Doug Rappaport, wrote an email to Agent Sesma that I actually saw his name, and then it dawned on me that he was involved in this case, and then we went from there. Uh, it was unbelievable, literally unbelievable to me. I was in utter shock that he was involved and was the one who said, have you seen the movie Gone Girl? And even after this revelation was made, Agent Sesma was kept on the case. The lack of professionalism and not only with Agent Sesma, but his supervisors and everyone who kept him on this case, the prosecutor who would not recognize that this is a major, major issue in the case. They just protected him. That's one of the more disheartening things is that there's no guardrails to this. It's a kind of big blue line, protect our agents instead of actually just removing them from the case and then giving us some fresh eyes, which would be invaluable. That's how you know that he knew that it was a problem because he didn't show his face around Aaron or his attorneys, but he came in and sat down when Mustard was questioning me and then came in the second day and 
you know, the series doesn't have the the footage because we weren't, of course, they didn't hand it over to us, the FBI, but he grilled me the next day, like clearly with the intention to try to catch me in a lie. He would stop me. He would try to confuse me. Were you on the left side, the right side, were the blindfolds on or off? And he had me go over every detail of the rapes from what position I was in to where he touched with what. And I mean, I'm just sitting there like head in my hands, bawling, crying. And he is sitting there watching me suffer through this, knowing that he has this conflict of interest. And then still at the end tells my attorney, you should watch the movie Gone Girl. I'm 99% sure she did this. That is disgusting. I think they were just going to be mad at me no matter what. I mean, you know, fast forward to finding out the chief of police told Lieutenant Kenny Park to go out and burn that bitch on the press conference when they hadn't even spoken to me. How much of that do you think is because of his involvement with Aaron's ex? And how much of do you think is just like, that's the kind of guy that he is and that's his style of his work? As far as Sesma, his decision-making, I don't know. Probably best case scenario for him is that he gets called a case. He believes that I killed Denise, so his conflict of interest doesn't matter or he wants his name on a big case. We do know that he's quite ambitious and wants to move up the ranks, and he has used our case on his resume to get promoted because he uh, has rationalized that he didn't do anything wrong and blamed circumstances over himself. And that is truly disturbing because he has, uh, doesn't appear from our understanding that he's learned anything from this. Denise, Aaron, and every move they made was under a microscope to be picked apart by apathetic police department and a scrutinizing public. Weeks passed without a break in the case, and Denise and Aaron found themselves the prime suspects in their own home invasion and abduction. Their lives seemed to be falling apart while living in a constant state of terror. They had their reputations smeared in national news headlines. Aaron and Denise feared for their livelihoods, and they feared losing their jobs. And I will say, they, at the time, were both working at Kaiser, and Kaiser was on the hoax train. Like... The only person that was really treated like a victim in this whole situation was Andrea. And we'll kind of go into that a little bit later. But there were many situations going on that Kaiser was either ignoring them or they were halting them from moving forward in their jobs. So, I mean, on top of all of this, they're just trying to get back to work and they can't, which is disheartening. Yeah. And question about why... Andrea is seen as a victim at all. You know, I don't see her as a bad character in this story. Like, what personally happened between her and Aaron is what it is. You know, it doesn't make her a bad person. It makes her bad fiance. But how was she a victim? Even if, hypothetically, Aaron and Denise do this hoax, why is Andrea a victim? Like, what does she have to do with that at all? It's strange. Yeah. And I mean, again, we can like, we're going to get into this a little bit later, but yeah, if you're believing it yourself that it's a hoax, she's getting special treatment at work. Well, which again, we'll get into later. But like, if you all believe it's a hoax, then why are you getting this special protection and all that? But yeah, yeah. nothing is making sense in this case. And it's just like so infuriating. But again, they're fearing that they're going to lose their jobs. And obviously, at this point, they're obviously receiving so much abuse on the internet. I'm sure you can't even imagine what's going on on social media. And also law enforcement, the only people who had the capacity to help them at all, had completely turned on them, abandoned them, and further victimized them. The biggest issue with Mustard, with Sesma, with a lot of the main players in this is that there was no accountability in the end. You know, we keep saying we can understand if you'd make a mistake, you jump to conclusions fine, it happens, own up to it, and then change your actions and show us, or not just us, but the public, you know, that you don't intend to do this again, that, you know, you you really are not sorry, but, you know, like, it, at least that you, that you don't want to make the same mistakes. The problem with all this is their lack of accountability got another family attacked. Those responsible for Aaron and Denise's attack and abduction were not done ruining lives. After all, think about it. What incentive did they have to stop? They were emboldened. The police weren't even looking for them, leaving them free to plan their next move and plan the ambush of yet another innocent and unexpecting family. 
Part two of the story with Denise and Aaron will be available next week on our regular feed, but part two is available right now on Patreon if you don't want to wait. And we can't thank Aaron and Denise enough for being so candid, so vulnerable, and so authentic during our conversation with them. And if you think you know everything there is to learn about this story, it's just the tip of the iceberg. And if you're listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at thefirstdegreepodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram. Join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time. Join our Patreon if you are looking for more first degree content. And stick around tomorrow. We'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close. But not that close. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland. Writing and research for these episodes are done by me. Sources include Denise and Aaron's book, Victim F, Court Documents, The Atavist Magazine, San Francisco Chronicle, The Vallejo Sun. And remember, our first degree guest is always our largest source. <laughs>